3: A golden bullet. When the bullet turns red, the general will be dead. El chuncho, the bandit. El niño, the gringo. Side by side, they killed for what they believed in, gold. El Santo, the Holy One. What the Lord giveth, he took away. Adelita, the woman, she gave aid and comfort to the enemy, then blasted him to pieces. The general, he needed many guns. He got one bullet, a golden bullet, a bullet for the general.
1: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Andrew Leovold. Hey, Mike. It's great to be uh, here as a punter for once. Also back in the booth is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. We conclude Spaghetti Western Month with Damiano Damiani's ¿Quién Sabe? from 1966. Released in the U.S. as a bullet for the general, it's the story of a Mexican revolutionary, El Chuncho. He's kind of more of a gunrunner, played by Gian Maria Volente and his relationship with his brother El Santo. No, not that El Santo, played by Klaus Kinski and a gringo that Chucho names Nino, played by Lou Castell. We will be spoiling the film as we go along. So if you haven't seen A Bullet for the General before, go back and watch the film and come back. We will still be here. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw A Bullet for the General and what did you think?
2: I want to say it was probably sometime about 10 years ago when I started to get into some of the non-typical spaghetti westerns, like the not super famous ones. And this is around the time that I fell in love with John Maria Vellante, who is quite possibly my favorite actor. And he is incredible here. Uh, especially (laughs) the scene which we'll talk about where he waves a gold machine gun in the air and says, gold machine gun for the revolution. So, like, how can you not love that?
0: It's
4: dynamite. And Andrew, how about yourself? Probably the same, I would say, about 10 years ago. I mean, I've been obsessing about spaghetti westerns ever since I saw The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly on Betamax when Betamax actually first came out. And, and it wasn't just the violence. <laughs> it wasn't just the sardonic humor. I think it was the, the landscapes of southern Spain that captivated me and set me on this path of obsessing about Italian western towns in the south of Spain. I ended up going to Almeria and uh, spending a couple of trips to Spain, wandering around the old spaghetti western sets and working out this idea of the Almerian Western what that actually means as as a subgenre of European cinema. And Bullet for the General, I think I saw before my first trip to Elmeria. And for me, it's one of the most perfect Elmerian westerns because it incorporates so much of the landscape around uh, Elmeria and Tabernas and and that really craggy, grey, brown, desolate landscape it just absolutely blew my mind and of course the political angle the the idea of the zapata western completely captivated me as well sent me off another down another rabbit hole and um you know here we are talking obsessively about bullet for the general this was actually a first time watch for me
1: i had Ooh. yeah i new Icarumba Yeah, I knew about the film. I'd read about the film. It was listed in the top 10 of a lot of lists of spaghetti westerns and I think I've owned the film for years. I might have owned it in multiple formats and just kind of kept upgrading it but never actually watched it. Finally ended up watching it and wow, it really is fantastic. And I watched the the disc that I bought had a documentary about Valente as an extra and it was just A really great documentary talking about him and talking about how his acting led to him being more of a revolutionary, which is hilarious because in this, he's not really a revolutionary. He's saying all the right things, you know, que viva Mexico and all these things, but really he is all about the money or at least at first he's about the money and he's kind of a outlaw and well, he's very much an outlaw. And, you know, the very first scene that we have is this major set piece of this railroad robbery where he is robbing the train for guns. And wow, what a way to start off the film. But even before that, the very first shot of the film is these guys who are marching in line and they get to a wall and they turn and then they're shot. And
4: it just sets the tone for the film perfectly. That's the battle of Algiers moment.
2: That opening, the first time I saw it, I I didn't really know what I was expecting because at that point I hadn't seen a ton of spaghetti Westerns. And so I figured it was going to be this kind of slow atmospheric thing, lots of great music and shots of the, the Desert in Spain, and it's like, whoa, okay, <laughs> here we go.
1: Well, just the pace of the film was so surprising to me. You know, we have this major set piece of this train robbery going on, and I love the way that we're introduced to Valente's character, where you hear these drums and you think that it's on the soundtrack, but it's actually diegetic that Pop he's got over the,
0: the hill yes, playing, playing drum
2: on his horse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so great!
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Kettle drums, no less. I love it. He's his own hype man. How baroque. <laughs> There's also this gentleman on the train, El Nino, whose uh, real name is what? Tate, the Lou Castell character. I mean, it's kind of good that we chose this as the last. Western of the month, because this brings together a lot of other things that we've talked about in Spaghetti Western Month. This, you know, the very first one we did this month was Matalo, which had Lucas Dell, and here we have him in a different role here. We've talked about Klaus Kinski when we talked about The Great Silence, and then, uh, John Maria, Maria Valente. I've mentioned him several times. I've mentioned the role that he played in Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More, and here he's, He's so close to playing, like, the Ramon character. He's got the same, obviously, same facial features, the same type of scraggly beard, the mustache, all this. But you could knock it further away from Ramon than El Chuncho, who is just this amazing character. Just a ball of energy throughout so much of this film.
2: Maybe one of you will know the answer to this. I don't entirely understand why, but in all three of the films that you just mentioned... At this time, he's, like, in his mid-30s. But in all those films, they put all this gray in his hair. It's like, what? why? (laughs) I mean, he looks insane, which is great. And if anyone who is listening isn't super familiar with him, possibly my favorite thing about him is that in every movie, he just has wildly different hair. And he is one of the world's greatest hair actors. Like, if you watch Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion every time his character starts to lose it, his hair just gets crazy. (laughs) So I think that's maybe kind of what's going on in these spaghetti Westerns he's in, but it's like, why are they trying to age him so much?
4: I think it's probably the stress. I mean, so much happens to his characters. And then when, when you see um, his mustache hairs being plucked out by the commandant, I mean, how much more of a violation of that character could you get than his beloved mustache being neutered? (laughs)
1: Well, and as a man of fellow facial hair, you know how painful that can be just to pluck a hair, and he just keeps doing it over and over again, and I could just feel every single time he did it. Brutal.
2: He's still pretty good-natured, though, which I think is such a great contrast to how much violence he's capable of, and just how stoked he is about the gold-plated machine gun, and how many people it can kill in how many seconds, but he's almost jolly.
4: When you look at that Zapata Western timeline, I mean, this is what, pretty much the first.
2: Yeah, the first one.
4: The Gian Maria Volante character, Chuncho, is uh, pretty much a prototype of the character that Thomas Milian would play in all of the subsequent Zapata Westerns. You know, he's that brazen opportunist absolutely flagrant opportunist who uses the revolution as a way of being able to slither like a snake through the landscape for his own selfish purposes, but then inadvertently becomes a revolutionary at the end. And so this lays down the railway tracks for all of those Kabuchi and Sergio Salima westerns that follow.
2: When I was watching it again this time around for the episode, it made me think a lot about something like Rossellini's General Della Rovere, which, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's set during the Nazi occupation of Italy in World War II when the Italians have basically kind of given up. And there's this character who's a con artist who is pretty much forced to pretend that he's this... hero of the resistance and he ultimately becomes one because he's sort of in that role and it's just so interesting to think about how these certain definitely certain italian art house films but also these Zapata westerns in particular take a really cynical honest look at why men engage in warfare And so often films try to present it as this black and white thing like, oh, it's always for heroic reasons and you're defending your country. And when you actually look at the way people behave in wars, even in civil wars or revolutionary wars like the Mexican Revolution, which is what these Zapata Westerns are all about. It's way more complicated than that. And I just love that this whole cycle confronts that. And it says like people are in this for a lot of different reasons. And certainly they can change their political leanings, but that cynicism, you got to love it.
4: When you consider what Italy went through during World War Two, that cynicism deserves to be there. But then you all also have Coming out of uh, Europe and particularly Italy, that that tr- central figure of the trickster, which is such a deep-rooted cultural thing, and so it, it finds purchase in the Chuncho character and and uh, the Thomas Millian characters, and I would say that Itali- particularly Italian audiences for this film would have absolutely loved it. And you see the trickster evolve into the Terence Hill characters in the in the Trinity films. You know a little tamed down but certainly that idea of of someone being able to flip the tables and and uh one-up the authority figures that's so anarchic and it's so deeply italian i would say after watching so many italian films
2: those type of trickster characters especially in these zapata movies and especially as portrayed by thomas millian I feel like they often have some subversive sexual themes going on as well. Like in Thomas Million's case, he often plays these characters that are very kind of confrontational of machismo and Italian heteronormativity or whatever you want to call it. And in life was pretty much openly bisexual so i think he enjoyed playing those roles but even here the relationship between john maria volante's character and Lou castell is bizarre it's very strange especially because Lou castell looks like a toddler who just became an adult with that giant head of his <laughs> but like are they in love i would
1: call it fetal attraction yeah, and I, I read a gay reading of the film last night, and I was just like, okay, yeah, this makes total sense.
4: And even Alex Cox calls it one of the greatest male romances of, of the silver screen. And I mean, you couldn't get more of a contrast between the craggy Gian Maria Volonte and that smooth baby-like exterior of, of Luca Stell,
2: who looks like he wandered in from a '30s gangster movie. The way he's dressed and how like clean he is compared to everyone else in the film.
4: Let's get baby faced
2: And
4: I
1: love when uh, the lady is trying to put the stuff up above him in the train and she brushes against him and he takes out the handkerchief and just yeah gets that off the even the very first time we see him where he just cuts to the front of the line mm. to buy the tickets for the train. Oh, man. And that little kid from for a few dollars more is like, oh, do you like Mexico? He's like, no, no, no I don't.
4: Yeah.
1: And you get that repeated scene both with the little kid and then also with the railroad line right towards the end. And it's just like, wow, this is really nice. It's very, very smartly directed and written. Yeah.
2: The first time I saw it, I read him as just being super racist and that homoeroticism, that sort of like misogyny angle didn't even occur to me until now.
4: As a lot of um, figures in European left-wing cinema would have represented Lou Castell being that young, hateful, deeply selfish character is the United States in the eyes of very left-wing leaning filmmakers. And there's a point where the commandant says, ah, he's American. He has no soul, but he has a lot of dollars.
2: Still accurate. Lou <laughs> Castell
4: is America. He's basically exploiting the situation south of the border for his own ends. And yet, he decides to share the loot with his would-be lover.
2: And save his life.
4: Which is quite strange. Gian Maria Volante, of course, feeling that intense lover's betrayal, decides to turn on, uh, you know, and, and because of that bond that has developed between the two, he feels that betrayal so much more acutely. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that, that it, it's a lot deeper than you would initially suspect.
2: So many westerns in general, especially American westerns, but also a lot of the spaghetti westerns have these very complicated male relationships where sometimes there are these sort of love-hate bonds. Like, Lee Van Cleef always has somebody who, like, can't get rid of him, but they hate him because he's got that, you know, big daddy energy. (laughs) But this one is even stranger, I think, because of the way the political shift plays out. It's like he becomes a revolutionary. and, And when I say he, I mean Chuncho. It's almost like he becomes a revolutionary... Because he's opening his eyes to the way that Nino treats Mexican people, but also because of that betrayal that you're talking about. It's such a weird, perfect film.
4: Well, who knows? Quien sabe?
2: (laughs) Exactly.
1: After we have this opening with the train robbery, I just love that it basically just goes into high gear and becomes a, a series of one robbery after another after another after another and i was just like wait a second aren't we supposed to like take a little bit of a break here get to know these characters a little bit more i mean we do get to know them what's remarkable is that with this gang, I actually started to learn their names, which normally with a gang, you wouldn't learn their names. You wouldn't know anything about them. You would know like, oh, he's the singer. He's the jealous boyfriend. And that there's a woman as part of the gang was really remarkable as well. And that they use her in one of these ploys. I really like that where she comes in as pretending to be a prostitute and has her big trunk. And I love when she's got that big old cigar and lights the, the fuse on the trunk. And then we have that great Moment of the soldiers who are so happy to have this new prostitute that they're going to open up this bottle of champagne. And as the cork pops open, that's when the bomb goes off. It was just such a nice moment.
4: And she hides behind her parasol.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she shields
4: herself from the rubble with her parasol. It's just astounding. And probably five minutes later,
1: after all this carnage has gone on, you see Chuncho Chun, and he's walking around and he's just guzzling champagne. I'm like, that's really nice.
2: John Maria Vellante, in general, is a very physical actor. Like, he's always, like, sweating or gesturing or making his hair all crazy. Like, he's very active. And here, he's eating in almost every scene. He's either eating or drinking, but not, like, just taking a bite and chewing. He's, like, actively stuffing his mouth in as many scenes as possible. It's, It's kind of breathtaking. I think
4: he's on Mezcal pretty much the entire film.
2: Oh, yeah. He seems yeah. to have
4: an endless supply of that in his pocket.
1: Well, and that pays off, too. That moment when he rides into the general's camp and there's the guy who's just like, yeah, we haven't eaten. We, you know, we have nothing. And he's got that big old loaf of bread that he's just been stuffing into his mouth. And he's just like, OK, I guess I'll give you this <laughs> loaf of bread. <laughs> and it's such a, a bother for him. But I think that's actually kind of one of the first moments where he has empathy for somebody other than himself. That's his Jesus moment.
2: It is. But speaking of Jesus moments and empathy, this is the single most empathetic character that Klaus Kinski has ever played. This is the only time in a movie I think I've seen him in where he doesn't look like a complete psychopath
1: though he has moments. He
2: does. Oh, he has psychotic
1: moments. <laughs> to see that little twitch in the side of his mouth. And I'm just like, Oh boy, he's about to go off. Yeah, but
2: Like <laughs> when he, he has this great scene where I love this scene in particular, because I feel like it provides such an important balance point, but They come into town and they're killing all these soldiers. And there's a moment where you feel like, okay, this is just a bloodbath. These are bad guys. And Klaus Kinski of all people sees these poor people who have been kept in this like underground open air prison and they're starving. They're basically dying of thirst. And he looks deeply moved and sets them free. And you think like, OK, maybe they're not all bad and maybe they, some of them do want to do the right thing for the country. But then his way of punishing the officers who imprison them is to just put them in the same jail while having that facial tick like he's about to go off. <laughs> yeah,
4: and condemning them to starve to death, you know, it's a brutal. much more ghastly end than... Just shooting them,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah. John Maria just wanted to take their champagne and shoot them, but Klaus, vengeance
4: is his, saith the Klaus. When he pops up
1: and has hand grenades, he's like, "For the Father, (laughs) whom, For the Son,
4: (laughs) for the Holy Spirit, Amen." Being a location nerd, you know where that scene was shot? It's a uh, a building called Cortillo del Frey. It's the monastery from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly.
2: Whoa! I thought it looked so much of this looks really familiar to me, and I, I'm sure that's why it's
4: all filmed pretty much within a, a 20 kilometer radius of uh, Almeria. There's there's one little village, the village of San Miguel, is a little bit further to the west, southeast of Granada, in a little village called Pelopos, and where Lucastel shoots the the general is about a kilometer down the hill from there ah, so okay. but but um, the monastery from the good the bad and the ugly it's south of taberna so south of the the gray brown hills that you see all the way through the film it's a little bit south heading towards the coast about five minutes drive from the village that lee van cleef and gian maria volante have their shootout in for a few dollars more
2: no wonder it looks familiar so if you
4: can imagine like if you're driving around this place, and like I literally did, I drove around for uh, about three days, looking at um, looking at all of these locations and, and sourcing the locations. That monastery, um, which features quite heavily in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, is now a condemned building. But my friend Jesus and I still managed to sneak in through the barbed wire. Of
2: course, you did.
4: And locals called the cops on us we're <laughs> running around the crumbling walls going la, 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 you know taking photos of everything and all of a sudden a cop car starts circling the perimeter and we're like shit it's the fuzz <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're literally trying to hide behind the walls trying to evade the cops and then ran out through the hole in the wall, back into the car and sped off down towards Las Albaracocas. So yeah. So when I look at that building, I go, Oh man, that's where I almost got arrested.
2: <laughs> so you're bandits now is what you're saying, because of this I'm movie. a bandito. <laughs>
1: He's now a member of the hole in the wall
2: game.
4: <laughs> that was me.
1: That was me. There's such good use of the landscape. We talked a little bit about the train scene. That's fantastic. There's one moment when – and it was very unexpected. You, you just don't necessarily see this. But uh, Nino comes down with malaria, and they stop after fucking Nino murdered the last wow, guy in the gang. Head. Oh, man. He's such a dick. And it's like th- – I'm trying to think like pretty much from the first time you see this guy you're like he's up to no good but then we just keep seeing and we the audience keep seeing more and more of these moments and really it takes a long time for Chuncho to finally see that he's no good but he doesn't see that El Niño murders the last guy in the gang throws the money away and it's just like oh yeah you know let, let's go and they're riding along and Nino's not looking good and they stop and they rest for a little while that shot of him leading Nino into this decrepit building. And you've got the sunrise going down on the right side of the screen. It is one of the most beautiful shots in the entire film. And this is a film that's filled with really nice shots.
4: It's gorgeous. And wedded to the soundtrack as well. I mean, we have to talk about the music, which makes that film gallop along. You know, there, there is this relentless pace to the film, which is powered along by that jaunty mariachi music almost from a Spanish composer as well.
2: That's what I like so much about these as they go along is I feel like they start to include more Spanish talent, like actors as well and cinematographers especially. And so like, I know they're Italian films, but because of the sort of range of cast and crew members, they just feel like this European mashup sometimes, but in a perfect way. When you
4: look at um, the division of labor, there are some films which are exclusively Spanish. They don't necessarily sit in the canon of great European westerns, and a lot of the Italian ones that were just shot in Italy with no Spanish talent, they're also they also suffer the same fate. It's usually the co-productions, the ones that do have the majority of Spanish talent in front of and behind the camera, that work so well because without those vistas, you know, without the Mexican looking extras who incidentally were all mostly gypsies, they would round up the local gypsy camp and stick them in sombreros and say, you're now Mexicans.
2: With these Zapata Westerns, that to me is one of the most interesting kind of like problem solving things is who do we cast as Mexican and what do they actually look like and where are they actually from? Like, Martine Beswick, who is wonderful as Adelita, but she already is kind of exotic looking because her background uh, is very mixed, I think. Like she's British, but. Not Jamaican. Yes, that's right. Um, And didn't she grow up? Her father was a a diplomat or something. She grew up in the islands, something like that, or just a businessman. But they put this weird kind of, and I never noticed this until I watched the Blu-ray recently, they put this like kind of cakey looking makeup on her that I think is supposed to make her look more tan, but she's already tan.
4: <laughs> she is in brown face. It's, it's not your imagination.
2: Okay, good. I was like, is that just my TV looking weird? But it's, it's like not much darker than the color of her actual skin. So it just seems like a very strange choice.
4: It's overkill. Of
1: course, Klaus Ginski being the most Spanish-looking person that you could ever find on Earth.
2: They're, they're blonde Spanish people. The Viking raids went all down that coast. So
1: At least they say he's my half-brother rather than my full brother.
2: <laughs> I know. Because they look nothing alike. <laughs>
1: But he's so good, and I love that character. And I, I hate that sometimes he disappears from the screen. You know, Like, not even just when he's in San Miguel and the rest of them go and see the general. It's while they're even doing these raids, at times it feels like Kinski just disappears. And it's like, oh, come on back, Klaus. I really want to see more of you. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was Damiano not – getting along with kinski because it sounds like he really had his hands full between
4: valente and kinski i can't even imagine (laughs) maybe they just sent him to madrid for a week and say look you know here's a bag of money just go and you know spend your time with prostitutes and
2: yeah here's one bag of money and one bag of cocaine could you get cocaine in italy at that time probably not one bag of money
4: Yeah, right. (laughs) But then, but then uh, Klaus Kinski's character makes that incredible reappearance at the end when uh, Chuncho is being condemned by his hero Elias, and the look of betrayal on Santo's face is incredible when he's uh, looking at his brother, who's sold out an entire village. And I'm sure Santo was probably witness to the massacre as well, since he was still there waiting for his half-brother to return. And uh, I think the look on his face when the crowd parts and Kinski's standing there in judgment of his brother, that is one of the great Klaus-Kinski moments. And I'm, I'm totally with Sam where I, I believe that uh, Klaus was hardly ever better. It's almost a restrained performance.
2: Yeah, it is restrained. Klaus is one of those actors... There's definitely a handful of them like this. Nicholas Cage, I think, is the most modern example. But where their style of acting is just always to 11, I think a lot of the time they give better performances when they're not just frothing at the mouth the whole time, trying to be on. And this is such a perfect example of that for me with Klaus, because he's understated. And I'm sure at this point, anybody watching this movie for the first time who's a cult film fan will know who he is and will expect a certain thing from him. And I think because the movie doesn't give you that it's almost even better.
1: The Nicholas Cage film pig is out right now where he gives one of those much more low key performances and he's getting, you know, accolades for it and rightly so, because yeah, he doesn't have to be at 11 every single time. It's great when he is, but Yeah, this is one of those moments, and this is definitely a great Kinski moment. And having just seen him in The Great Silence, I mean, it's just like, wow, this guy, what an amazing performance he can give in both of these films. Either completely dastardly in The Great Silence, but living within the law. And then also here, you know, just this priest on the side of the revolution. So it kind of puts him in an interesting place. And it gets to break out every once in a while, like with those hand grenades. But yeah, when he comes through and it's just like, this is my brother. I need to take care of this. And, oh, it is so great.
2: I also love their dialogue exchange at the end where John Maria is, uh, doesn't ever put up a fight. Like, I really can't believe how good natured El Chuncho is for the whole film, regardless of what's happening to him or what he's doing. But it's like he walks off and says yeah okay you can kill me just not in this patch of of land that smells like goats we have to go a little further and then asks you know are you gonna shoot me in the head are you gonna shoot me on the heart he acquiesces yes
4: because he's been judged by his hero and he realizes he's been a complete shit then he goes well fair call
2: Like he knows. You don't get characters like that very often in these sorts of violent masculine world type movies where you have somebody who is instantly capable of self-reflection and who realizes, okay, I did something bad
4: that's the great thing about the Chuncho character that he, he does have a series of epiphanies and they don't lead to instant enlightenment, (laughs) you know, instant transformation, but it's a very slow series of, of uh, transformations, which then, you know, after which he reverts back to his normal selfish self. But the moment where he's teaching the peasants, the, the peones in San Miguel, how to shoot rifles, you know, because he, he wants so to bored. be their general. <laughs> you know? Yeah, obviously realizing that he's massacred all of those people, that he wanted to be their savior. And then, of course, the betrayal by El Nino. It's those moments which lead him to suddenly go revolution.
2: It's also really interesting and, I think, refreshing to see a film about a revolution about leftist politics made by so many people who had those politics like obviously we mentioned john maria volante at the beginning of the episode super devout active leftist but Lou castell was basically kicked out of italy for being a too active member of the communist party and if you don't know who he is He's actually a Swiss actor, but because his father really was a, a diplomat in South America, he grew up just all over the place from a pretty young age, had those really active politics. But also, I love that uh, Carla Gravina is in this. She plays Rosaria, who is the wife of the Don that they they steal his land, steal his car, and execute him for basically for the crime of being rich. But his wife, who puts up such a protest, she was, I think at that point or shortly after that, a pretty prominent member of the Italian Communist Party, and was John Maria Vellante's longtime partner. So they were sort of hand-in-hand during the years of lead trying to help out as many italian revolutionaries as they could
1: when we talked about el nino being america and here he is going south of the border illegally to take out a leader of the revolution not that we would ever have done anything like that in our political history
2: never i wonder if the cia got the idea from watching this movie
1: Well, and then also, this is 1966, and the way that he sees where the general's at, and then he immediately turns and sees basically the perch where he is going to take him out, I'm just like, gosh, this feels very Kennedy to me. This feels really Kennedy. And when
4: the... What was that other uh, Italian Western that pretty much recreates oh. the Kennedy assassination oh, The price, price of, of power. power. I,
2: I watched that recently for the first time and my mind was blown.
4: Isn't that uh, an incredible film?
2: It's insane. Yeah. yeah. If, if you've never heard of that, it's a spaghetti Western that basically recreates the Kennedy assassination, but changes some of the details so that it can be set in like the early 1900s is wild. And so
4: that it could be sold to America. <laughs> it's uh, Garfield. <laughs> Yes.
2: Yeah, they can't call the character Kennedy.
4: It's
1: interesting too that they don't show the shot and that they don't, as far as I remember, they also don't show the shot that takes out El Santo either. No, they just show the reaction. Well, they show
2: you the reaction shot on Chuncho's face. Is Chuncho expecting that he's the one who's about to be shot, but then he sees his brother get killed and then he hears that announcement. Somebody shouts out that the general was shot with a gold bullet, and he's like, wait a minute.
1: (laughs) Because he had already seen that gold bullet in El Nino stuff when he went through it. When he was helping him get better, not through quinine, uh, but through mezcal. (laughs) And I'm surprised that he ever made a recovery.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, a little mezcal. It's like, uh, what's that? that american drama about all those greek people where the father's like just spray some windex on it and you'll be fine my big fat greek wedding yes it's him in the mezcal he's like it's good for when you're sick it's good for when you're tired it's good for sex (laughs) mezcal the (laughs) cure-all it'll put some lead in your pencil gringo
1: and then yeah that end that last bit of the film when he it's it reminded me a little bit of um the Shawshank redemption it's just like hey if we ever get separated you know meet me at uh, el zowapanido or whatever it is in shawshank and it's just like oh yeah i'll be at this hotel and i love how Castell comes in, just again, wearing the suit, looking like the gangster.
2: Fancy pants.
1: Oh, yeah. And where's Chincho? He's over with the peons, laying on a park bench and just, like, waiting for him to come back in. And that amazing almost execution scene that happens then, but how they, no, no, I was going to give you this money. And then it's the, I mean, God, it is so Judas, you know, this, oh, no, here, I want my money in gold pieces. I don't want it in paper. I want it in gold pieces, just to almost make a point.
4: When he realizes, oh shit.
2: <laughs> that scene could have been done much more quickly than it actually is. And I love that they sort of drag it out with all those details. Like El Nino makes the hotel desk clerk read to Chuncho this note that he's written him in case they get separated. And it's like he could have just, so he could have said to him in a quick line of dialogue, I, I left this for you. In case we didn't meet up, but it just, it feels very much like some sort of lover's quarrel type thing. Like, it feels so personal.
1: It's very much, let's meet at the top of the Empire State Building kind of thing.
4: (laughs) A revolution to remember.
2: Yes, and he he forces him to get a makeover.
1: (laughs) We even have the montage scene. As I was watching that, I was just like, God, this feels like Jimmy Stewart watching Kim Novak get made over here. Did
4: you also notice that Nino was uh, lying across a mommy figure? A woman who was probably at least three times his age. And it's almost like she's suckling him. Yeah, when he's laying back. Right, Yeah, right. I'm pretty sure that was deliberate.
2: Oh, it had to have been, considering the way his character interacts with women throughout the whole film. I made this comment earlier, but I think the first time I watched this, I assumed that the movie was just trying to code him as being racist against Mexicans because the gang, when he joins up with them, tries to kind of tease him about, Oh, you know, we're going to this town tonight. You can get yourself a woman. And he was like, I'm not interested and is not at all interested in Adelita. But seems very interested in in Rosario in the the Don's wife, who looks very like she's dressed very upper class and she's much paler. She doesn't look Mexican, basically. And it just seems so weird that she's the one that he kind of gives the most attention to. And then as soon as Adelita's wearing her clothes, then he pays attention to Adelita. It's very strange.
1: And when he's watching Valente dance with the yes. woman, it's just like, if this were any other Western, maybe we'd see those two men dancing together. I was just like, okay, this is interesting. It felt very much like, go dance, you know, and I will watch you and I will take notes. If this was a Pasolini Western?
2: Oh, my God. Or, so, Lou <laughs> Castell has this great role in Fassbender's Beware of the Holy Whore and fassbender made this western that is one of my favorite movies of all time that gets like zero attention called whitey if fassbender had made a western with luke castell and john maria they definitely would have been dancing together and they definitely also would have had a shootout at the end
4: and there would have been a bag of coke
2: there certainly would have both on screen and off
1: And I don't think it's any coincidence that when he finally shoots Castel, that he shoots him in the heart. You know, it's very, very much like you betrayed me and now I'm going to get back at you. It's very much that almost lover's kiss at the end.
2: It reminds me so much of those melodramas where like one person is getting on the train and the other person is staying behind and they're doing that sort of like tearful parting scene. And it is a tearful parting scene, except, of course, Chuncho fucking shoots him in the heart i'm gonna have he have to did do. have it coming
1: yeah <laughs> yes. and yeah he's crying and then he basically loses his mind
2: he comes to his senses
1: i love how wild Valente gets and when he breaks through and he's dynamite. just like buy dynamite yes yeah.
2: he gives them all of his gold and says don't buy bread with this money buy dynamite and he looks so happy <laughs>
1: And then runs off between the train cars and just into infinity. I just love that shot because you really never see him leave. He just goes forever as the credits start to roll. He disappears into a dot. And it's nice that he's still alive at the end of this film. I'm glad that they didn't make a bullet for the general too, but it was very nice that he doesn't, you know, he's, he is enlightened. Now he has come to his senses and maybe he will help the revolution. Well, everybody else dies.
2: (laughs) Everybody dies except him. (laughs) But I also love that whole arc begins with the train sequence And also ends with a totally different kind of train sequence. And I love the line of dialogue acknowledging that, where Nino asks him, have you ever been on a train? And he says, oh, 12 or 13. And he's like, no, 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 no. I mean as a passenger.
4: (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah, first time. (laughs) Location nerd time. Now, that station, I believe, is Guadix, which is about an hour and a half's drive from El Maria. And that entire railway line between Guadix and Almeria, every time you see a train in, uh, in a Spaghetti Western, nine times out of ten, it's that railway line between Almeria and Guadix. And it passes through a little um, hamlet called La Calahora. And that was the town that Carlos Simi built for Once Upon a Time in the West. So you can actually stand at the remains of that station and watch the trains go through because it's still an operational train line. Like I caught the, the train from Maria to Seville one time and you actually go through those embankments that are cut into the into the rock. You know, when the when the train is ambushed and you see the
2: you see John Maria playing a drum,
4: that's the train line actually cut into the mountains around Tabernas and, and uh, El Maria. The station still at Guadix uh, still pretty much looks like that. They've kept the 1800s character. So the colored tiles in the background, you can still stand in that room and look at the same tiles. But the outside of the station is a completely different building. That is the station at El Maria big, beautiful, ornate um, domed building that uh, Rod Steiger and James Coburn walk out of in a fistful of dynamite.
2: Oh, wow. That's crazy. Train
4: equals that singular line between one small town and Almeria. Yeah. And it being an operational train line means you can actually get an old locomotive on there, which they house in Guadix. You can actually see those trains within a a railway museum in Guadix. So the the place is still crawling with history, you know, with with cinema history. It, it's like making a pilgrimage to these places because it. I, I call it sacred geography, that you actually stand on the on the same spot where Gian Maria Vellante and Klaus Kinski stood, and you can feel that energy. You know, it's it's uh, about as close as <laughs> to a religious experience as I'll probably ever get.
2: There is something very surreal about visiting a film location for a film that you've seen a lot of times because you feel like you know the area or it's very familiar, but it has that sort of uncanny valley type thing where you've experienced it, but you haven't really physically experienced it. Well,
1: it's like so many of my memories of growing up are not actual memories. They're home movies. So it's just like... You know, I've absorbed those home movies enough where I'm just like, Oh yeah, I remember going to that park, but it's like, no, no, there's a film of that. So that that's where you have that memory from.
4: Yeah, but for me, you know, standing on the top of one of the hills in Almeria looking down into the Rambler, and, and you can see in bullet well, for the General the riders chasing the general's representative through that S-shaped Rambler. I've stood on the top of one of those hills instantly i'm nine years old again watching the good the bad and the ugly for the first time you know what i mean it's such a part of your dna that you have these images and now you're actually able to physically touch the objects that you've venerated from a distance and that have only existed in memories of moving images that you've been removed from now you are no longer removed yeah you're feeding off that physical geographic energy
2: It's also funny to think about how spaghetti westerns as a genre are so dependent on that particular location. I feel like there aren't that many other genres, at least cult movie genres, that are like that, where such a big part of why people watch the films and how they're made are really so dependent on location. And with these, it's so fascinating because... It's just like through this prism. It's like an, Ital- an Italian reinterpretation of an American subgenre, but actually set in Mexico, but actually shot in Spain. And it's just, just this wonderful, fantastical reinterpretation of these like historical and cultural themes.
1: I was surprised, frankly, when he ended up meeting the general and the general wasn't a bad guy. For some reason I thought for sure he would finally meet the general and the general would just be corrupt and awful and Like a
4: cartoon villain.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like the absolute twirling opposite. his mustache.
1: And when he gets the uh, the 5,000 pesos for selling all the guns, including the amazing golden machine gun. So good. That it, when he goes up and he's supposed to talk to the general, I was just like, okay, somehow the general's going to be like, don't you want to support the cause? Don't you want to put your money where your mouth is and just basically be there absorbing money and guns from this guy and just be 100% corrupt? And then when he lays out what happened at San Miguel, it's like, Oh, so-called different person not what i was expecting
2: a lot of the reason for that is because we're so used to seeing these sorts of movies that feature revolutionary heroes being made by someone with very different politics so they tend to present the revolutionary heroes as flawed or as fundamentally bad people
4: yeah or, or cartoon villains
2: Yeah, totally as cartoon villains, because of course, you have to be on the side of capitalism always. So it's great to see one of these movies made predominantly by people with left wing politics, because of all those little surprises like that, where you're like, well, wait, he's, there's not something more going on. He's actually just a good guy.
4: But the thing is, all of the peonies, you know, they all have dignity as well, except for the guys who are dropping their rifles. But the guy who confronts Don Felipe in his farmhouse and Don Felipe says, you, you want to kill me because I'm rich. The, the guy says, no, I want to kill you because I'm poor and you kept us poor. And that yes. says it all. It's
2: so There's good. your
4: critique of cri- capitalism in a tiny little kernel.
2: Yeah, in like a 10 second moment, it's glorious.
1: Okay, yeah, I can get behind that statement.
2: There are so many of those similar scenes in movies where poor people, especially poor people who have become outlaws and criminals, are up against these corrupt rich people. And it's always that language of you just hate us because we're rich. You just hate us because... You know, we were successful and we worked hard and got these things that you didn't get. And it's like, no, that's not the reason.
4: And you were just lazy peasants.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> why don't poor people buy more money?
2: If they would just get off their lazy asses.
4: Well, they could borrow more, you know. <laughs> that's, the, that's the American way. Uh, now I know why you got me onto this program, because I'm, I'm the non-American Unlike the Damiano Damiani character who can criticize America with impunity,
2: oh, we can too. We just probably will get ang- we will both get angry comments on social media about it. Well,
4: what what I want to know is when was it a bad thing to be a communist? When did it become actually a bad thing?
2: Are you asking this as a real question or as a hypothetical question? No,
4: it's a genuinely real question. You know, when, when was it a bad thing to not be a bootlicker of the ruling elites?
2: A big part of the problem is when people in Western Europe and the United States finally realized, basically when people in the West finally realized what Stalin had done, all of those right wing capitalist governments sort of used that as propaganda and said, yes, look, all communists want these atrocities. And so that's when it became not okay to be communist is because being communist suddenly immediately meant that you were associated with Stalin and totalitarianism. And I think that, you know, was sort of the tipping point there in the late 60s, and especially the early 70s, when all of those really radical filmmakers kind of had to take a step back and say, like, do we still want to be associated with the Communist Party? And so I think in the 70s, after all of those really incredible protests in 68 and 69, I do think there's this backlash where people are just confused about what they're supposed to be associated with, and what's the best way to protest, and what's the best way to be radical?
1: I mean, we saw things like Mao, who was taking you know this farming nation and turning it into a much more advanced society, but then he does something like the Cultural Revolution where he just murders all of the intellectuals and yeah. artists, and it's like, okay, well, that puts a real kink in my Chinese fetish. So that's why we've got, you know, Godard making La Chinois and these things were just like, well, I was supporting this, but now I don't know anymore. And I can't admit that I'm wrong ever. And
2: I think that's a big part of the problem is none of them want to admit they're wrong. I mean, Sartre, of all those sort of like, more famous intellectuals, was like the last person to renounce his Communist Party membership. And he just didn't want to admit that he was wrong. It's like, all right, get your dicks out of the way and just like stop tripping over yourselves.
1: And they managed to, to combine communism and socialism so much that now in 2021, people are lobbying around communists and socialists like they're insult terms where it's like, well, I don't actually see anything wrong with socialism.
4: So pink equals red.
2: Well, there's nothing wrong with communism. There's just a lot wrong with Stalinism.
1: I think we're all agreed that with that. That was a very right?
2: long-winded answer.
1: <laughs> yes, what Stalin did was wrong, and what Mao did was wrong. And even when you go to China now, they'll say, yeah, we've got pictures of Mao all over the place, but he did some really bad things. Okay, thank you for at least you're admitting that. I wanted to go all the way back to the beginning of the movie real quick. And you know, we talked a little bit about El Santo being this monk character. I love that one of the first images that we see in the movie is super religious, and it is the captain from the army who's been crucified, and that's what's stopping the train. And Well, crucified, but it's very much a crucifixion, even though he's chained to this cross. And I love there's this lieutenant on the train, and the the lieutenant is powerless to think on his own, and he is Desperate to get to this captain and wants to do everything he can to get orders from the captain and the way he's crawling underneath the train to get to the captain. And I have to say, I don't think we've actually brought this up, but this is a incredibly, if not wonderfully violent film. And some of that violence, like I said, is off screen. So you don't see the general get assassinated. You don't see El Santo get a bullet in the head, but you do get to see a lot of other people dying. There's a lot of, I, I talked about the uh, firing squad scene. The firing squad comes back several times throughout the thing. But the moment that really just sent chills down my spine was when they finally start the train going again and it is inevitably going towards the captain and you don't see him get killed, but you do see that wonderful shot of the sword on the track Snapped get run over half. by the. Yeah.
3: Oh,
4: man. And you're just like, it is so brutal. What a better comment about organized religion. Can't remember which character. I think it's Chuncho says, why should so many people die for one man? You know, why should so many people die in the name of Jesus?
2: The captain, I'm not actually sure who plays him, but he's incredible because he has that line where the lieutenant is trying to decide, it is just like at a loss. And there's so much in this movie, so much really subtle stuff about people just wanting to follow orders, people just wanting someone to tell them what to do. So the lieutenant is like desperately shouting down the train to this poor man tied to the train tracks, tied to a cross. Asking him for orders, and it's just so comical, but the guy eventually shouts back, you know what you need to do, I'm not going to order you, but...
4: Work it out for yourself.
2: Yeah, but he also says the life of one person is not worth the life of many. And so it's like those lines are repeated. But I think Chuncho says it again later when he talks about Jesus.
3: Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one
4: it's a very pointed critique at these uh, sort of sacrificial forms of organized thought.
2: Totally. And I think the sword also is very purposefully used because you could see it as being a symbol of this educated military class officers, because officers were the only ones who would carry those kinds of swords. And so instead of literally showing him get run over the sword snapping in half, I feel like it just has such great resonance. Like it's not just destroying one man. It's destroying also everything he represents.
4: So a privileged class. So why should so many poor people suffer uh, for one privileged guy? That scene is absolutely loaded with very sardonic humor, but there's also through the film, you know, a real silliness and, and goofy humor which almost seems at odds with the uh sort of the serious and the cynical tone they sit perfectly well because it is this european mix of the silly and the serious it's the spoonful of sugar that helps
1: the medicine go down i mean it is just that goofiness doesn't make it so this movie is just bashing you over the head with anything it feels very Of a piece, even though there are these tonal shifts in there, but it doesn't feel like you're getting whiplash. Like, whoa, wait a second. What is this doing here? What, why is this assassination here? We've just had Juncho being, you know, a a goofy sort and no, now we're talking about massacres and assassinations. This is too heavy, but no, it feels very much of a piece to me.
2: It also makes me think a lot of, recently I watched Fistful of Dollars and Yojimbo pretty close together, and it struck me how much more of that goofy humor is in Yojimbo than Fistful of Dollars. And it provides such an important balance, and I think it makes the characters seem so much more complex with very little expository dialogue. And in Fistful of Dollars, there could be a little more humor, maybe. (laughs)
1: More of of people making fun of Clint's mule. Yes. I mean, because that's the most quotable scene in the film, apart from, you know, aim for the heart, Ramon. But really, for me, it's, you know, going to apologize to my yep. mule is the, the <laughs> thing. I also thought it was interesting that there's the one town where Chuncho goes in and finds the younger boy that can read and write, yes. and, who was educated by again going back to religion. He was educated by monks, and so he puts that guy or that kid, I should say, in charge. I thought that was a really nice touch. And then that kid comes back later on. I don't know if he makes it through the movie, but it was kind of interesting that Chuncho is the guy who says who, who can read and write, and then puts that person in
4: charge.
2: But he also interrogates him and says, who can read and write? But now why can you read and write? Are your parents wealthy or are they poor?
4: (laughs) Yeah, but he was also put in charge of San Miguel and San Miguel got completely wiped out, remember? So I don't think he made it to the end of the film.
2: No, probably not. I
4: don't think he did.
2: Though, if he was anything like an American mayor, he would be hiding out in some rich person bunker while everyone else was executed. So... Maybe he made
1: it. He's the next dictator yes. to take out.
2: And bullet for the general Blame too. Blame the monks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised that we don't get like more of of Santo's guys and just like it's him and a whole cadre of like killer monks. That would be pretty neat.
4: That would be. I think we should mention that, um, you know, th- this film is at the start of a, a beautiful 10 year stretch of commercial and artistic hits from Damiani. And for some bizarre reason, he chose to bookend this 10-year period with Bullet for the General and then a genius, two partners, and a dupe, a.k.a. Nobody is the Greatest, with Terrence Hill, a very strange choice of comic Western which doesn't have any of the gravitas <laughs> or, the, or, the, or the artistic genius of, of uh, Bullet for the General. It's almost like it's a throwaway film. And it's almost like him, um, you know, almost uh, throwing away whatever goodwill that he built up with Bullet for a general.
2: I was reading and I don't know why. And I'm wondering if that shift towards, I guess, commercialism that you're talking about, it seems like Pasolini really hated him. And I don't exactly know why. Maybe he felt like, you know, he started off making these more political films and then just kind of gave up. And maybe that was some of the ire. I'm not really sure. But don't forget that he wound up making Amityville 2, The Possession. (laughs) It sounds like I'm making a joke, but it's fucking wild. It's really grim. It's way better than the first movie and has this crazy...
4: Is it political?
2: I guess you could sort of argue that it is. I mean, it's all about this family who moves into the, the original house from the first movie, but the possession isn't chalked up to this supernatural thing, not entirely. It's basically like the teenage son has grown up in this abusive family and has these strict Catholic parents who uh, it's implied that the father like rapes and beats his wife And there's this crazy incest subplot between the two teenage children. And because the son is in this house and there's this supernatural influence, he loses his shit and murders his entire family. It's crazy. So lots of weird stuff going on there about Italian and Italian-American masculinity and Catholicism sort of running amok and being oppressive, so...
4: I haven't seen it since it came out, so I should really go back and revisit. It's
2: so weird. It sounds like fun. It is.
4: <laughs> Incest is always fun.
2: Always. Yeah. There's a scene where he steals his teenage sister's panties for some reason. <laughs> Quality cinema.
4: But part of that ten year dream run of Damiani includes all of those, you know, political uh, crime films like
2: With Franco Davey
4: Owl and um, Confessions of a Police Captain, How to Kill a Judge. And I I would think a lot of people compare his films to Sergio Salima because of that left-wing Western angle. For me, he's more philosophically aligned with someone like Elio Petri, Investigation of a Citizen Under Suspicion. They share Gian Maria valente They obviously share your enthusiasm with Gian Maria, as do oh, I. Yes.
2: <laughs> okay, good. As should we all.
4: <laughs> but uh his political uh is, uh political films are deeply cynical, deeply moral. So I think there's a, a shared lineage there, you know, as they um, as they navigate through the late 60s and into the very deeply cynical 70s.
2: After his run with Franco Nero, I know he made a couple films with Giuliano Gemma that I, I think maybe are the last of that sort of political gasp before he was just kind of making... Genre films to make a living, but he worked with definitely some of the greats.
1: We were talking about religion before, and I just wanted to bring up the one thing uh, before I forget, which was I love when he actually confronts El Nino about the golden bullet and El Nino's excuse is, oh, it's a lucky charm. And then Trincho pulls out this thing and it, I couldn't really tell what it was, but I was listening to the Italian. I watched it the second time in Italian with English subs and for sure he says Cristo. And I'm just like, Oh, okay. So it's a little thing of Christ that is around us. Like I was expecting a cross to be pulled out, but it seemed like even cheaper than that. It was almost like a a cutout of a piece of paper. And he was just like, Oh, this is my lucky charm. I'm like,
4: I thought it was a piece of wood from the original cross. Or maybe I was on mezcal at the time. I don't
2: know. Yes, you had too much mezcal. I thought it was some kind of paper talisman type thing.
1: They both have their lucky charms and that one of them's going to be used to murder the other person's hero. I was like, okay,
2: great. Yeah, he's way he's gullible in the way that people are gullible when they're in love.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he overlooks all of Nino's flaws until the I end. Mean, in that- <laughs> yeah and that he even calls him Nino, you know child. It's
4: like, okay, that's what great. happens when you fall in love with a fatal assassin. Nothing good can come out of it, even for a, a, a Jesus slash Judas character like Kuncho.
2: There is a lot going on in this movie, and it it still amazes me that there's a whole cycle that started with this all about the Mexican Revolution. It just seems like a a strange or maybe unexpected subject, but I'm so glad that they veered into that different geographic and political territory. Well, once they stumbled into Andalusia and they looked around the grey-brown
4: mountains of Tabernas and and found the, the sand dunes, they went, my God, we've discovered Mexico. We can make films about Mexico here. And I think that was... Very transformative because in very stark contrast with the westerns that were made in the north of the country, uh, around Barcelona and uh, around the mountains around Madrid, which are very green or or snow-covered, when you do the drive from Madrid down to Almeria, you can literally see the countryside change colour. It goes from green to that grey-brown. And all of a sudden, it's filled with olive groves and you go, okay, it's still a little green, but then you hit Andalusia and it is dust and sand and bare rock and sage bushes. And you can't get more Mexico looking or, or you know, Southwest America than that. And I think all of a sudden filmmakers were thinking, oh, well, shit, you know, now now we have this as a location. We can start thinking about stories to feature within that location. and. Out of El Maria comes the Zapata Westerns. And I think pretty much all of those Kobuchi uh, and Salima films were shot within a 20-kilometer radius of El Maria itself, which makes it a magical place, worthy of pilgrimage.
2: <laughs> yes. You should uh, set up your own, like, tour guide thing. I wanted
4: to. I tried to a couple of years ago, and, yeah, and then COVID hit, and, but I, I'm, I, I reckon I'm going to turn it into a TV series. That's going to be one of my projects over the next couple of years, taking people around to burn and He was calling it Film Safari. You had a whole thing adventure. all laid and, out. It was and fantastic. I'll still do it as soon yeah, that as would be awesome. COVID allows me to. And, um, and I honestly believe that it would make a great cable show.
2: I think so, too. Film nerds
4: running around film locations going,
2: holy shit, that's the main store from Compañeros. Ay, ay, ay. You'll have to have me on there banging a drum saying this is exactly where John Maria stood. when. when I will
4: will pay your airfare just to watch you play kettle drums.
2: I'll bring my own (laughs) kettle drum.
4: (laughs) Oh shit. That's an oral contract. Oh my God. I feel somewhat committed. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break
1: and we're going to play preview for next week's show right after these brief messages.
0: Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons?
1: There's got to be a better way.
0: Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun.
2: I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image? Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good
0: Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by.
1: You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? that debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much. Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider, now available on your favorite podcast app or at (laughs) thehollywoodoutsider.com.
0: Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company, they review cult films, any cult film, every cult film, and it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member. <laughs> Tune in outside the cinema, baby. You know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out.
4: I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to the Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast.
3: Bobby, Bobby. Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. Bobby, Bobby. Que c'est ce pays, ça, là Alors, tu fois aussi... Ah, je comprends maintenant. C'est à cause de pas de l'eau comme toi qu'elle vient toujours en, temps en Réunion. Attends voir. C'est pour nous moucharder qui t'ont déguisé en caboy
4: la L'air n'y a pas de francs. C'est
3: la Paris, Paris, Paris. Paris, Paris, Paris. C'est sur la terre de Paris. Paris, Paris,
2: Paris.
1: That's right, we'll be back next week with Tuki Booty as we kick off a month looking at movies from Africa. Until then, I want to thank my co hosts, Andrew and Sam. So, Andrew, what is the latest from Down Under, sir?
4: First of all, I have to say thank you so much for letting me come on and rant and rave about Al Maria. It's it's such a a pleasure and a privilege. I'm doing the lockdown thing. I mean, I'm basically working on about four projects at once while selling things on the online store that I set up during COVID uh, called TrashVideoArchives.com. We're printing up neat T-shirts like Santo versus the Vampire Women and For Your Hide Only. (laughs) I'm hoping to finish by the end of this year a documentary on a Melbourne artist and punk rocker called Fred Negro, which is his real name. Crazy sort of um, David Allen Coe meets Gigi Allen meets Viz Comics meets all kinds of craziness. He's a really interesting character study. And I'm doing a book and documentary on Bobby A. Suarez, the Filipino director of Cleopatra Wong and the one-armed executioner. So I will have stuff to tour America before you know it. As soon as the is open, I'm there, muchachos. And Sam, how about you? What's going on with you?
2: I am, of course, already working on a new book. Um, my book about World War II, the legacy of World War II in European art house cinema, came out just a couple months ago. Uh, I also started a new podcast called twitch of the death nerve which looks at sort of psychotronic cinema more broadly and we will definitely have some spaghetti western episodes in the future and you can find that at the cinepunks network and basically everything i'm working on you can find listed at my patreon which is just patreon.com slash sam and thank you so much for letting me talk about john maria it's my favorite thing to do <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world.
4: Sinto
3: morales
4: y no puedo decirle
1: que yo me quisiera quedar
2: porque
3: yo me quisiera quedar en mi pueblo con panchita que tanto
4: me hizo sufrir y llorar.
1: Prefiero quedarme muriendo que hacerme
3: matar. Te rompo, te mato, te mato, te rompo, te tiro, te mato, te rompo, te tiro, te rompo, te mato, te mato, te rompo, te tiro, te mato, te tiro, te mato, te mato. te Te rompo, te tiro, te rompo, te tiro, te rompo, te tiro, te rompo, te mato, te doy.
1: Of this episode of The Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at The Projection
4: Booth podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang.